love. Yeah? All right. Are you ready to hear the word of God? Yes. Come on. Come on. Here we go. Here we go. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we just pray that you would take this next half an hour and make it meaningful for eternity. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't just be going through the motions or floating around some nice ideas, but Lord, that your life-giving truth would break into our lives and bring increasing life and freedom in our minds and hearts. Lord, we want to glorify you. And we just recognise, Lord, we need you to help us do that. We, we miss it naturally. So I pray for supernatural help in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We've been looking at the book in the Bible called 1 John. Been going through that. Hope you found it helpful. Um, and last week we looked, we ended up by looking at this whole idea that the seed of God, if you are born again, the seed of God is in us. And the, the Greek word is a very earthy word for seed. It's, the, it's, it's sperm. And it's exactly the same word used. And the idea is, is that the very, the very seed or the very sperm, the life-giving seed of God has come into us when we are born again. And our whole DNA as a result has been affected by that. I've been reading some staggering medical stuff on DNA this week and it's remarkable um, the way the whole thing works. If you've ever read anything on it, it's very staggering. But the idea here what we're met with is that if you are born of the Spirit, it's so much more than the fact that you've just made a decision to follow Jesus. It's so much more than, than the fact that you've kind of, I don't know, you've had some sort of experience and you want to turn over a new leaf or you want to start living better. That's not it. Your whole DNA has changed. You are a new creation. Your whole direction has changed. You will find that unless you are actively resisting the Holy Spirit, which why on earth would you want to do as a Christian? But unless you are doing that, you will find that the whole of your direction and the whole of your leaning is towards holiness, is towards godliness, is towards righteousness. And when you sin, you feel unhappy. You feel, you feel, you know in your heart of hearts this isn't how it should be. You can't do it comfortably anymore. Why? Because you've been born of God and the seed of God lives in you and your DNA has changed. You're a different person. You're not what you were. And so this is the thing. And so to, as, if you are a believer... To, to not live following the Lord, but to be giving place to things that are incompatible with, with, with the Christian life is actually a really tough place to live. It's full of tension and stress and a sense of conscience crisis and it's, it's full of unease and a lack of happiness because you've been cre recreated in God's image for holiness and for truth. That is the, what we're met with in John. Very remarkable stuff. So let's carry on. Let's read from verse 10 to the end of... Uh, let's read chapter 3 from verse 10 to the end of the chapter. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We shouldn't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Two things. I'm going to work through this verse by verse today because I think when you're working through uh, an epistle, it's helpful to do that so you, you know that I'm not just preaching my own nice ideas, but we're actually preaching the word. But secondly, I'll be very, very open, even in a more um, open way than normal, for people to interact and ask questions. I think this is a particularly challenging section of scripture. And it's very, very important that you don't get the wrong end of the stick about what I say, because actually I think the spiritual truth, there, are, there is often a lot of potential to miss it and to think, oh, he meant that and maybe I didn't. So please don't feel um, that you can't do that. I really would encourage that. The idea is that we go away having grasped what the man is talking about who's been inspired by the Spirit here. So this message, the message of John, is about assurance. How do I know I'm saved? What happened was we had these dodgy teachers that have come into the church here and they've really been talking about all kinds of things and living immorally and saying it's fine because I'm in him. I'm in Christ. You know. And so it's left this church confused. And so John hasn't so much written to them to say to them, are you really saved to the church? He said, look, here's what being really saved looks like. Hold that up against these other guys that have come in and understand the fact that you are saved, but these guys are deceivers. So he's really writing to assure them. He's not writing for them to test their own faith. But I think nevertheless, as you read it, it does, you think, oh, where do I stand? I think there can be that impact as you read it. The language is very strong. It's very black and white. So let's have a look at this. Verse 11. This is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Interesting word, should. Kind of speaks of obligation, doesn't it? (laughs) And duty. And I'm not sure we really like that sort of talk because it kind of smells a bit of legalism, maybe. Yeah? You should love what you say. How can you say, I should love that person? It's crazy. I can't make myself love that person. But then you have to ask, well, what do we mean? What does he mean by love? Because if love is a feeling, then absolutely right. It's crazy. You can't make yourself feel feelings for someone. Have you ever tried doing that? Maybe as a teenager, someone asked you out. And you felt bad saying no. <laughs> So you try to generate some kind of affection for that person. You ever done that? Generate some kind of attraction, some sense of feeling. Like, nothing happens, does it? It's impossible. You can't generate feelings. You can pretend that you feel something, but you can't... I can say to you now, feel sad. It doesn't work, does it? Well, no, something has to make you feel sad. You can't just generate feelings. So John can't be talking about a feeling here when he says you should love one another. It's crazy. So what is he talking about? Where we will get onto that as we go through the message today. But just to say in a nutshell now, we'll unpack it later, but in a nutshell it's this, it's a gospel logic, it says this, God has loved you, everything good in your life has come as a result of God's love. <laughs> the chain of silent tapping going on to get to the back, that's brilliant. 
God has loved you. Everything that, that is good about your life has come as a result of the gospel, the blessings from God. Okay, So you live in the good of God's love, the good of his act towards you, that, which has blessed you. Now, act in a way that blesses others. Yeah? See the logic? To live, to live in a way which says, man, God, I thank you for your love. You've changed my life. I'm loving your blessings. I'm loving the fact that you laid down your life for me and now that I'm brand new and I'm, I'm enjoying this brand new life in God and then someone comes to you and they need some blessing and you're like, nah. Johnny's saying, that's inconsistent. That doesn't work. So he says, you should love one another. And then he goes on in verse 12, we have another should. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now I want to just quickly read you the story of Cain. It's only a short story, seven verses or so, in Genesis 4. It's a very interesting story. Listen to this. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well... Won't you be accepted? And if you don't do well, listen to this vivid imagery. If you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So sin is waiting, and sin's desire is to master, is to, is to rule, is, is for him. Also, sin wants Cain, and God says, you need to rule over this thing, because this thing is waiting to pounce and grab you. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and killed him. The first murder in scripture. And so John says you should love one another and you should not be like Cain who was a murderer. Straight away, I don't know if you're anything like me, you're thinking, John, you're being very black and white here. Isn't there any room in the middle? Is it, is it that I've got to be someone who loves and if not, I'm a murderer? What's the deal here? Yeah, for a society that doesn't like black and white, especially like ours as well, this is kind of like, John, man, what, what are you thinking? Well, what is John getting at here? Because he says, again, you've got a duty not to be like Cain. Here's why, if you're not living a life of love, you are vulnerable to becoming a murderer. It is that human beings cannot exist in a vacuum. And so if you're not growing in love, and if you're not on the stretch and filling your life with the love of God, then what happens is, is that you tend to become very vulnerable to the desires of the flesh, one of which is envy. You look at others that are more gifted than you, more attractive than you, more popular than you, more whatever than you, or in your perception they are, and you begin to think, wouldn't it be great if, I don't know, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if a pot of boiling water fell on their face or something like this? You can feel these hor horrible things. I've never personally f thought that. I just, <laughs> but you, you can be, people begin to say, envy, envy. Well, envy is about saying, I, I don't want you to be as successful as you are because it makes me feel worse about myself. Yep. And you know if you're an envious person because when something bad happens, you find yourself inwardly rejoicing. Yeah. Someone is more successful than you, and then they get even more su successful, and then suddenly they lose their position, or they, they lose their job. You find yourself going, <laughs> you think, what is that? That is the flesh, which basically just wants, cons wants more for self constantly, never satisfied, always wants more. And what, and what John is saying here is this, is that jealousy gives, gives birth to hatred. 
So this is how it started. Cain brought his offering. Abel brought his. God says, yeah, Abel, you've brought yours in faith. We know that from Hebrews 11. It was a faith offering. Cain's obviously wasn't. And so God has regard for Abel's, not for Cain's. So Cain goes, hmm, what's so good about his offering? Then he begins to hate him. Actually, what's so good about him? He's always the righteous one. Yeah? He's always the goody-goody. He's always pleasing God. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to sort him out. When no one's I'm going to get him. That is the logic. Jealousy, hatred, murder. Even John Stott, who's a very sober scholar, he says this. Jealousy, hatred, murder is a natural and terrible sequence. Look at Jesus. What caused Jesus to be crucified on a human level? It was jealousy. The religious leaders hated him. He was too popular. He was too powerful. He was too supernatural. Let's get rid of him. They plotted to kill him. If you read John 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. What was their response? Rather than rejoicing, let's find a way of killing him. Jealous, envious. Where does he get his power from? We're supposed to be the religious leaders. It's our position. We're supposed to have the authority. Where does this authority come from? And you find it. it, it, What did it lead to? It led to hatred, which led in turn to murder. The Bible is not shy about speaking of human corruption. We tend not to focus on it. It makes us feel uncomfortable. Um, We actually can become very... We we like the fact we're a civilised country. We don't do things like that. I tell you, the law is a restrainer. We thank God for the laws in this country. But if they were to be removed, you would see what people are really like. It's a scary thing. All you've got to do is look at New Orleans. Civilised nation. The floods come. Electricity goes out. There's no law and order. Bang. The things that people start doing. It's just what people, it's, just, it's people. We've, got, we've all got that potential in us. And the Bible says if we hate someone, we're guilty of murder. If you hate someone in your heart, you're guilty of murdering them. You want them removed. You want them out of your life. Jesus said that. If anyone's angry with his brother in his heart, he's, he's murdered them. And so now we're starting to see, oh, this is making sense now. If we're not living lives of love, actually suddenly there's a lot of vulnerability to become something very ungodly. It's a very bold statement of what a true believer is. Someone who loves, lives a life of love. Then you can say, this is so naive. How can you expect to live a life of love in a society like ours? Surely you don't expect it to be returned. Well, no, we don't. It's not about, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. That's not how a Christian loves. Listen to what Jesus said. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. That's John 15, 18 to 21. Listen to how John puts it in the letter, verse 13. Don't be surprised, brothers, if that the world hates you. I want to say this to you today. Listen... Don't be surprised if the world hates you. Imagine your workplace or your university or whatever, discover you're a Christian, discover what you believe, and all turn against you. Would it be an emotional shock for you? John says, don't let it be. Expect it. Now, Christians in this nation haven't experienced that much over the last few decades, but unless something very dramatic changes politically soon, we probably will. Because our stance is becoming increasingly um, unpopular um, in terms of absolute truth and certain views on certain issues which are political hot potatoes. Which we say, we're not moving on that, we believe the Bible. We say it graciously, lovingly, but we say that's what we believe. That makes you, especially in universities, be ready for it. 
I have to take it as a serious responsibility on my part to prepare you for that. Because otherwise it would be like someone's pulled the rug out from under your feet and you don't know which way's up and you say, I wasn't ready for this. Be ready for it. Jesus said, tremble if all men speak well of you. Tremble. Because, they, because that was the case with the false prophets. Because the, the false prophets had a different answer for each different occasion. They would hear something, what does this person want to hear? I will say this. That's, what, that's the spirit of the false prophet. You just say what you think people want to hear. The true prophets, Jeremiah, end up getting thrown down a well. He said the same thing. He said what God put in his heart. And we've got to be gracious. We've got to be full of love, but we've got to be upfront about this. This is not a ticket to Easy Street, loving people. Okay? I'm not saying this is the way to get popular. Seven steps to getting popular. <laughs> it's not the gospel. <laughs> it's not the gospel, folks. It's not, it's not like that. Your righteousness will provoke hatred in some people. They will hate you because you're righteous. Because you don't... They say, I wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You've been there, have you? And people at work, they say, you know, yeah, I'm just, I just need one of these. You have one too, so I'm not doing that. What do you mean? They don't like it. They don't like it because it suddenly exposes the darkness. So to live righteously will provoke hatred in some, as Abel's righteousness did in Cain. But I want to put into your spirit the fact we are not called to be popular. We are called to love. We are called to be concerned with the glory of God and the good of people. That's what we're called to. If some people love us for that, we're the, we become the fragrance of life to them, they think, yeah, fantastic, praise God. We don't want to make enemies. We don't want to be contentious for the sake of it. Absolutely not. But if some people hate us because we love Jesus, so be it. I'm not moving. I'm not going to change on that. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1 verse 10, if I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The two don't go together. You can't serve God and people. You've got to make it cool. This is the fullness of life that we're saved for. These are the good works that we've been prepared in advance to do. To love. To love God and to love people. Verses 14 and 15. We know that we've passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So to not live in love is to live in death. What that means is this, if you're not living in love, I can guarantee that over time your relationships will become full of strife, they will become full of anger, um, arguments, there will be divorce, there will be breakup, there will be, I've seen it in my own um, uh, natural family. If people don't live in sacrificial love, we'll look at what love is in just a minute, but if you're not living like that, the result over time, it might not come straight away, but over time will be death, there will be divorce, there will be factions, there will be arguments, there will be, there'll be resentments, there will be, I haven't spoken to that person for years, all that will happen through not living in love, through just not giving yourself to people in love. It, it becomes murderous. Maybe not physically, maybe, the, maybe no one physically gets stabbed to death, but it becomes murderous. People's lives get drained out of them because this part of their family no, no longer speaks to them and then this person's got an issue with them and it's always arguments and, instead of, and it becomes, it's deadly, it's satanic. It's satanic. It's not just the way it goes. It's not just, well, that's life. No, 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 it, that's not life in the kingdom. It's not. It's very, very different what God is calling us to. It's incompatible with eternal life. So what does this life of love look like? Surely that's the question now. I want, I want to live like this. I've got the seed of God in me. I feel I'm, I want to live in life, not death. What does it look like? Verse 16. Let's have a look. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
The Bible, when it talks about Jesus, refers to him more as the one who loved you than the one who loves you. Did you know that? Little fact for you. I haven't counted that. I like to count, but I haven't counted that one. But the Bible talks about Jesus in the New Testament more as the one who loved you than the one who loves you. Now, this could mean two things. If I said to you, look, if I said to Davina, Davina, I loved you. Now, that could, that could sound bad. She could think, what are, you sa- oh, what are you saying? Are you saying that you no longer love me? Because it's past tense, okay? So it could mean that. Or it could mean, when I say I loved you, I could be speaking about an act in the past that was so significant and so truly pivotal that straight away she knows what I'm referring to when I say I loved you. Yes? The reason why the Bible says Jesus loved you rather than Jesus loves you is this. Not because he used to love you and no longer does. Praise the Lord. Okay? (laughs) Because there was an act of such concrete, sacrificial, life-changing love in the past that when we think of the love of Christ, we always look back to it because it's concrete, it's historic, it's absolutely life-changing, it's mysterious, but it's concrete, it's physical, it's there always for us, it's obviously the cross, yes? And so when the Bible says that Jesus loved you, it's talking about that, because if I say Jesus loves you, I could just be talking about a nice feeling. Oh, that's nice, thank you. People say, oh, that's lovely, thank you, he loves you too. You know, but what does it mean? No, Jesus loved you, he laid down his life for you, he, he was nailed to a tree, for you. He, he utterly gave himself for you. Yeah? This is the love that we read about in the New Testament. This is the love that has changed our lives. Yes? Not just Jesus loves you and he's nice. No, no. He, the cross. That is where the sin gets defeated. That is where new life comes. That is, where, that is where the devil gets stripped of his authority. That is where God's wrath is satisfied once and for all. Hallelujah. It's the cross. It's the place of victory. We always go back to it because that's where it happened. That is where our faith is in the crucified man. The crucified God-man, Jesus Christ. And we resolve to know nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Yeah? We're not into being clever and philosophical. We know the truth. Hallelujah. Our whole being has been changed by it. Our whole moral centre, the whole direction of what we are has been completely transformed by what happened there. And so we are clear on it. And so that's what, that is the love of God. By this we know love. This is how you know what love is. He laid down his life for you. That's where his love is seen. And as we live in the good of it, we are called to imitate it. And so when I ask myself, well, am I going to love you today? It's not based on how I'm feeling today. I had a late night. I'm pretty worn out. Don't push me. Okay? That's not Christian logic. Christian logic is I am seriously blessed and loved by God. I am going to love you. Now some people can get this wrong and think this is inferior to worldly love. I say, yeah, but, but, but you know, I know you are nice to me. I know you blessed me. I know you loved me. But what if underneath that you are bubbling with anger towards me? Yeah? And can kind of get all kind of analytical about it. You know, that's not the point actually, we so overrate feelings. The Bible overrates truth and says live by the truth and guess what? Your feelings will get in line. They will line up. It might take time, but just live by the truth. Whereas we say, no, but I'm feeling this. So, uh, yeah, I must marry this person. You don't know the strength of the feeling. What? Are they doing you good? Let's just step back. Is that person doing you good? I've, I've seen it. You see it even with, with believers. Council believers. No, God's definitely called us to be together. We're definitely going to get married. We've prayed about it. It's that we just feel this. this. But it's destructive. <laughs> Even you admit you're doing each other's heads in. What are you doing? 
But you understand the feeling, the, the sense of, and God's spoken, but you're destroying each other. Call it off. Truth. We can live by that. It's wonderful. It's liberating. And as you do so, the feelings get in line. So I love you. End of story. I love you. Yeah? I don't, because you see, it's actually an unworthy digression to say to myself, well, look, you, you, you know, you, I know that you know, to love you would be to do this, but I'm just not feeling too good at the moment. So I'm going to just think about whether I'm going to or not. It's an unworthy digression for a believer. So no, I love you. Because everything that has blessed me has been the love of God, I'm going to give it back. Yeah? That's how it works. That's, that's New Testament logic. That's how it works. Here's what John Stott says. The self-sacrifice of Christ is not just a revelation of love to be admired. It is an example to copy. Okay? It's not enough to sing the songs and be bowled over with what Christ has done. It's an example for us in the power of the Holy Spirit to copy. You can't do it by natural power. I'm going to be like Jesus. No, you say, I'm going to be born again. The Spirit lives in me, so I'm going to be like Jesus. Yeah? Listen to this. Love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for our own life to enrich the life of another. I surrender that which has value for my own life to enrich your life. That is love. Another scholar says, love is the giving impulse. It's practical over sentimental. It's actions that bring the blessing. You see, I, I might need a favour. I mean, bless you guys. The crazy church van has broken again. I had it about a week and it broke. The new van broke. <laughs> Camden Road, Monday night. Me and the AA man. The, the new old van. Yeah, okay, yeah. But, so, this, I think, what, what, do we, what do we do? Are we going to get the stuff to church? I was hoping to get a mechanic in yesterday. It didn't work out. I think, what do I do? So I just text the guys, guys, can you, can you come and help with the, Can you come and help be at mine at 8.50 with your cars. I've hated even texting it. I'm going to hate me. I've got, I can't get in there. I can't. So, <laughs> sense it. And bless you guys. See you there. We'll be there. So, now, now, for me, that actually is more of a blessing than if you said, can't do it, but there's a really good card in the post that just tells you that we really love you. <laughs> now, the cards are great, but I want the car. All right? I need the cars. There's something of a blessing about practical love, isn't there? Even with kids, you know, kids can melt your heart. But the biggest blessing with a kid is when they're genuinely obedient because they love you. You think, hey, that's great. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. And I think there is that. We've got to get our minds renewed because we're in a very sentimental kind of society where, you know, this whole feelings thing is a huge thing for us. But um, verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So it hangs around possessions and deeds rather than around um, words. So Christ's life is remarkable for his lack of possessions. Yeah. I've, got to, got, to, got, to, got to pay the taxes. Peter, go down to the lake and the first fish will have a coin in the mouth. Didn't even have any on him. His life is remarkable for his freedom from possessions. Now, possessions aren't wrong. If they've got a place in your heart, they are. Get rid of them. Best place to get free from them. And start again. If they get a place in your heart, get rid of them again. But it hangs on. How, what are you like with your possessions? Oh, I know there's a need in the church, but well, no. But what if they scratch it? Doesn't stand up. Doesn't stand up. It's a materialistic attitude. So what he's saying, if the brother has a need, and you've got what... The, the worldly thing to meet the need, but you hold it back. How does the love of God abide? How does that? It's practical. Yeah? Very practical stuff. The, the word Christian means little Christ. They used to be called um, 
followers of the way. But they become, they become called Christians in Antioch because it means little Christ. They were mimicking Christ. And it was, a, it was a term of mockery. Oh, you're just trying to live like him, you little Christ. But it's stuck. Yeah? The idea is, is that we try and live like him. And if you want to be challenged on lifestyle, read the Gospels, man. Very, very challenging. But our lives are called to look like that. Increasingly, it's a journey. I understand that. It's a journey. We're all on the same journey. Sometimes you think, oh, I've missed it there. I've made it. You know, absolutely. Don't get the wrong. But just, I'm just trying to preach the word without watering it down. This is the apostolic gospel. John Stott says, not many of us are called to lay down our lives in some deed of heroism, but we constantly have the much more prosaic opportunity to share our possessions with those in need. Listen to this. Oh, John Stott does some great one-liners. As life does not dwell in the murderer, so love does not dwell in the miser. Ooh. You like that? As life, eternal life does not dwell in the murderer, so love does not dwell in the miser. We need to be big. Bigger than our possessions. To grow so that we're, even if you think, oh, I haven't got much, be big with what you've got. Just be big. Verse 19, which is to the end now, which is perhaps the most trickiest portion in this passage. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So imagine a court case. You're the defendant, you're on trial, okay, in this scenario. You're, you're, you're in the dock, and the accuser or the prosecutor is your conscience, your heart. Okay? So in this scenario, we have you and your heart, different. And the judge is God. Now what's happening here is that John is saying, look, if we're living in love, then we shall know we're of the truth, okay? And be able to reassure our heart before God, yeah, I'm not a pretender, I'm not a hypocrite. Anyone here ever experienced accusation as if you're not the real thing? Anyone ever experienced that? You know, you're just, yeah, you're not even born again. Yeah, you just, you know, you're, you're, you're imagining it. The Bible seems to assume that's quite common in the believer's experience. These things happen. And so John says, listen, you will know you are in the truth, not if you've said the sinner's prayer. Be a bit provocative here. So your heart accuses you, you're not really born again. John says, you, your, your confidence doesn't come from the fact he says, no, it does, because at Billy Graham, uh, 15 years ago, I said that prayer, so I must be. John says, doesn't say that. Completely out of the picture. What is John saying? You'll know you're of the truth if you're living a life of love. That's how you know. Because didn't Jesus say you'll know a tree by its you know a tree by its fruit? John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit, bear fruit. That's the deal. That's how it works, you see. See, sometimes our heart can wonder, am I really saved? Am I truly born again? Did I just make this up? And so it's common to find ways where we can reassure our heart before God. One scholar says this, that there are actual things we can point to. Not things we've professed or felt or imagined or intended, but things we've done. Yeah? So this can be a little bit tricky because you can feel like, so the confidence for our salvation is based on the good deeds I've done. Well, no. It's based on Christ. But sometimes when, you're, when your conscience is accusing you, you actually need a few concrete things to be able to say, yeah, but look, actually, I, I, God's work in my life is real. I am truly born again because there's some fruits to point to. You understand what I mean? Yeah? You say, no, because look, that situation came up and instead of just taking, I, I gave there. Oh, no, no, I laid my life down in that situation. Do you see what I mean? And it's actually, what it does, it reassures our heart before God that we're not pretenders. And Satan loves to accuse, you're a pretender, you're a pretender. And so the, the apostle's saying, look, have deeds, have love deeds, whereby you can reassure your heart before God that you're not just making this thing up. You're not just kind of 
living for yourself really, but doing the Christian songs and the Christian thing. But actually you're the real thing. It's very challenging. Listen to this, verses 20 and 22. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Actually, no, let's stop with verse 20 for a second. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So even if I'm getting condemned, my conscience is saying, Satan's getting in on it, blah, blah, blah. Actually, God is greater than all of that, okay, and he can come in and put my heart at rest. So you're one of mine, okay? He's greater than that. He can overcome that. So he's greater. Okay? But listen to this, moving on from that, beloved, if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. So if I've got fruit in my life, I say, no, look, I, 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 I gave myself for that person there. No, look, I, I love that person there. Then what it means is that our heart is no longer feeling condemned before God, and the result is this, confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments, and we do what pleases him. Okay, so, so Satan comes in, you're inconsistent, you're not all you should be, you say you follow Christ, but what about this area of your life, and always points to the biggest weakness, and you think, oh no, I'm done for. But if you have fruit, you're able to fight back and say, no, because this, no, because that, look, God's work in my life is real, Jesus really did come in, and he's made me a new creation, so the accuser is silent, and what happens is there's a confidence before God, and you can begin to pray boldly. Yes? Whereas if you are in that thing of, I'm a pretender, you try praying boldly if you're in that mindset. Absolute nightmare. Yeah? Because you're just feeling utterly condemned. The fruit of love is confidence. Gives us the confidence. Yeah, no, God's really at work in me. Yeah? God really is at work. Final two verses. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another, just as he's commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So in this last two verses, John pulls together the main two themes of the letter, which are really assurance based on belief in Jesus Christ, that he was truly man, truly God, that he was also the son of God, that he actually died, that on the cross he paid the price for my sins, that God's anger at my sins were fully satisfied in what Christ did on the cross, that he bore my sins in his body, that he, he actually physically died, that he was carried to a tomb, was buried in that tomb, and three days later he actually rose again physically, um, appeared to the disciples and then ascended to heaven and is now seated in glory and will return again. Yes, that is the gospel that we believe. It's concrete, historical, and that is our victory. We, the idea of the Christian life is that we are in him, so everything that he did is now true of us. Okay, He died to sin, so we died to sin. Yeah? He was buried and so we've been buried to that old way of life. He rose again so we've been rose again because we're in him, we're hidden in him, newness of life. And as he's ascended to heaven, the Bible says that we are now seated with him in heavenly places. Yeah. Yeah, so we're in it. That is the gospel that we, that we believe. Number one, that gives us assurance. And number two, our lives as a result of this glorious gospel are marked by love. We're givers. Yeah, we give. That we live by the given impulse. And these are the things God, John now pulls together and he says, if you've got that, and if you've got that, you can be assured before God that you are one of his. Hallelujah. Amen. It's a simple thing, but it's very, very powerful. Pulls the whole thing together. I'll sum it up with a John Stock quote and then we'll come back to worship the Lord. I like John Stock, you might have noticed. Hatred characterises the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. Love characterises the church whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. Okay? So you've got these parallels there. You've got hatred, love, the world, the church, Cain, Christ, devil, 
God. <laughs> Murder, self-sacrifice, spiritual death, eternal life. Yeah, very. that's what John's been doing there through this whole thing. Hallelujah. Let me urge you to take courage from the fact that Jesus Christ is your saviour and develop that gospel logic in your mind, therefore I will love. Yeah? Are there any questions before we finish? Please, if there are, please do ask them because I just, I just want to make sure that we're really helping you. I recognise this stuff. If you're, if you're genuinely concerned about your standing before God, you need to be just through on what's really being said here and what isn't. It's very important you don't leave here bowed down and crushed under a sense of, you know. If you are feeling convicted that you've not been living a life of love, that is evidence of the life of God in you. Okay? Important to know that as well. If you're feeling, man, I'm not sure that I'm living that life of love. If you were not born again, that probably wouldn't trouble you. You might think, oh, it's a shame. But there wouldn't be that sense of conviction before God. I need to get this right. If that is going on in your heart at the moment, that is a sign that you are born again. Okay? Important, big one there. But is there any, just, if we need to just tussle this through, work this through together, interactively anymore. It's very important that we do. Okay. <laughs> if there's anything afterwards, feel free to talk to me. But I'll, I'll, This is our anchor, yeah? This is our anchor. And so, sometimes it comes, it's like, Phew, it's challenging, okay? Uh, but I think that's good. Because it keeps us in that place of, no, I want to I go on and stretch out for God. You know what I mean? And so, it's a good thing. Should we pray? The band would like to come up. Father, first of all, we want to just thank you for the gospel. I want to thank you for this amazing act of self-sacrifice that has completely transformed who we are. Lord, those of us here, Lord, that have known that work of your grace in our life that's made us into new people, we are no longer what we were. We say thank you so much. Thank you, Lord, that it all hangs on your act of saving mercy at the cross. And we thank you so much. Thank you, you've created a salvation that totally covers every base. Lord, You've gone before us, you've made a way for us, and we're totally accepted in you. Hallelujah. And now I thank you, Lord, that you so for us, you so want us to look like you, that you've empowered us to live these lives of love. And that is what holiness is. We thank you that holiness isn't about lots of thousands and thousands of rules about what not to do and what to do, but it's about loving. It's about loving you and loving people. It's about being caught up with who you are. And Lord, I pray for increasingly for power. I thank you, Lord, that this is a loving church. I thank you, Lord, for the many reports of people that come that just feel the love in the place. Hallelujah. We say, let it grow, Lord. Let it grow, let it grow, let it grow, Lord God, so that a world that is often filled with um, divorce and filled with difficulties and filled with strife and envies and murders and competition, Lord God, will be able to turn its head and see a community coming through, Lord God, that is marked by the complete opposite of that, Lord God. And, and, and we pray that many people's lives, Father, will be changed, Lord God, as they, as they experience a community of love, Lord, a community that's not perfect and that's still figuring it out, but is nevertheless alive with the love of God. I pray for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.